Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Fast Money starts right now, live from the NASDAQ market site overlooking New York City's Times Square. I'm Melissa Lee. Your traders on the desk are Tim Seymour, Karen Feinerman, Dan Nathan, and Guy Adami. Tonight on Fast, Red December rages on. Stocks tanking again today. But one strategist says the bull market isn't dead yet. He will explain why. Plus, it just keeps getting worse for Goldman Sachs. The stock is now down 40% from its 52-week high. But the chartmaster says there is one thing that has him pressing the buy button. He will explain. We start with the market sell-off. Check out the S&P 500 taking out those February lows in the final minutes of trading. We did slightly bounce off that level, but stocks still managing to close at the lowest level in more than a year. Meantime, the Dow dropping more than 500 points. The Nasdaq wiping out its gains for the year, joining the other major indices in negative territory. So as we sink further and further into a correction, are we heading straight for a bear market? Are the bears here to stay, Guy? Well, the bears here to say hi, Mel. By the way, hi. Happy nice Monday. Weekend. Yeah, we're right in the window now of the holidays. Like eight days. Yeah, that's fantastic. Let's save the Christmas special for a time when maybe the market. Maybe less when the market right. when the market is actually not as big of a storm. Not in turmoil. So look, I do think I thought the Fed should move. I think the Fed should move. Karen and I were talking about this, but I can actually play lay out a bull case for the market now that the Fed maybe moves and then gets extraordinarily dovish for all of 2019 or even better for the market they say you know what we're not doing anything we've tested that 25 30 level in the s p that you just talked about from the february low so maybe people have gotten themselves so bearish that wednesday they could get themselves a little bit of a christmas present early and this market rallies into the rest of the year that said, I think the Fed would be making a big mistake by not moving, but I could absolutely see that scenario. What do you think? Yeah, I would just add one point there. I think it would be a huge problem for the Fed and for all Fed uh, chairs from here on out if they really do give in to just uh, you know down 7% in the market this month and also the uh, pressure from the president. Because really the, what they're doing is they're going to be ceding control for a good long time to the president. But it's why, not a vacuum. Be, why would this be the president? I mean, why, why wouldn't this just be market factors that are, are really in the face that say, I get what well, the Fed is doing, uh, what they're dot doing, plots still say to go. I mean, so that's all I know. I've been hearing dot plots for five years during this whole you know period of just extraordinary monetary easing. Now they're tightening. They're sticking to their guns. I think they have to do it. I mean, that's my. You my actually point. think the Fed should not? I've actually raise. evolved my thinking. Yeah. Meaning, I, I've changed my mind. I, I've sort of come around to maybe they should not. Or the scenario that Guy laid out: one and very dovish. Very dovish, not locking, you know, uh, not putting themselves in a corner. Anything for 2019. I also, you and I were talking about this a little bit. Is it off the table that they make some change to the, uh, you know, shrinking the portfolio? Yeah, right. The, the is quantitative, it, the, right. T- yeah, the, the QT, the QT, right. Exactly. which is right. Is that so? Is it, it seems to be? It's not in the conversation ever. It's all about the Fed raising rates or not. I don't know if that's something that could become in play. I mean, if QE helped on the way up. Doesn't QT have a, Less QT. a dampening effect? It sure does. $600 billion. I mean, there's, there's a lot at work here. Um, I, I think also the Fed could look at, Dan, what's going on in credit markets. And I, I think if you, that, that, to me, is what's different about what's going on in the last three to four weeks 
Uh, you may have seen the leverage loan index that's out. That's again a measure really of, of high grade stuff and, and the activity going on in the space. You can actually look at uh, the FT did a nice highlight of the fact that the high yield market, which is 1.2 trillion, has had zero issuance this month. And if it goes to the end of the month, that will be uh, as bad as it had, or the last time it did that was November of 2008. High yields at two and a half year lows. We haven't seen, you know, at the start of a credit cycle, possibly um, no sign of the impact of fallen angels or credit downgrades yet. That's a little rare for where we are right now at, on the verge of a cycle. So credit concerns me. Let me just add one more thing about that piece today, the op-ed yeah. piece, Stanley Druckenmiller, also written by Kevin Warsh. I was sort of wondering if it was somehow Kevin Warsh throwing his hat into the ring again to be the Fed chair, right? We right. know that yeah. Trump really doesn't like Powell. I'm not saying this is, you know, likely, but it, it just that was the first thought in my mind saying, hey, I will be more dovish. Right. Not that I think Powell's bad. But I don't. Can we, can we all agree, though, in the last 10 years when, when markets and our economies have been very reliant on uh, central bank policy, specifically our Fed uh, in particular, that the markets do not like surprises? And I think it would be a huge mistake for Jerome Powell to diverge too much from what the expectations are. Right now, Fed funds is pricing, uh, pricing a 68% chance of an increase of 25 this pips mm-hmm. this week. So, you know, why do they want to go out and so surprise anybody? About, There's this public debate yeah. going on right now, very right? public debate. So it just doesn't make any sense what to surprise What about this and something very, very hawkish, uh, dovish in terms of I what just they think lay out there's for not going to be year. anything that's very, very anything. It may be a little more dovish than it was. It was just like the statement that he gave that they're closer to neutral than they were a long ways from neutral. They just but, tightened well, up that line. Here's the question. I mean, if everybody and their brothers now saying a one hike and then a pause or some sort of dovish hike, right? Right. What, what's the market response to that? I well, mean, the, if, if, if the markets are sort of anticipating that, do you think we'll get a pop well, I think on the back of that? Built into this conversation, I think none of us are saying this, but I think there's this belief that the only reason the market's gone down over the, since October is because of the Federal Reserve. I don't think that's true, by I the way. I don't think it's true. I don't think no. it's true at all. But I think a lot of people believe that. And if you look at Twitter, if you read a lot of things that are out there, a lot of people think that but for the Fed, this market would be making new highs. I'm not one of those people. But to answer your question, I think if they were to take a more dovish tone, given what we've done, given the levels that we tested today, given the fact that now the VIX is around 25, you could set yourself up for a pretty nice rally into year end. I think that's a rally that should be sold and will be sold, but that's how it's setting up to me into Wednesday. Yeah. I still think trade, though, is the number one issue sure. facing this market. And I don't know that we'll get any kind of improvement over the next, you know, two weeks. By March 1st. Uh, well, <laughs> right. I don't even know if we'll get improvement by then. I don't know. Is it February 1st or March? I, whatever. Anyway, that to me is still the biggest issue out there that, uh, because it's such uncertainty. And that follows through to companies sort of making their projections way more than a quarter point of hike. What I'll say is we're definitely not at risk of going into higher gear in this economy. And in fact, if anything, there's people that are starting to talk about where we are coming into the first quarter of next year. Um, The bottom line is the impact on S&P earnings is really all that matters for equity markets. That and the credit side, which I think equity markets are still not discounting enough. Uh, And to say that we should be unchanged on the expectations of where we were for S&P earnings uh, even a couple months ago, um, that does not take into account not only the bearishness that we've heard from the C-suite, but the fact of the matter is we have heard some major negative headwinds from around the world, which I think are important. Okay, so here's the question. Are we headed to a bear market? Earlier today on the halftime report, uh, Bond King Jeffrey Gunlack of Double Line had a warning for the markets. I'm pretty sure this is a bear market. I mean, people like this definition of 20% down as a bear market, but that's obviously very arbitrary. 
I've been around for over 35 years in this business and I've seen a number of bear markets and it's more about kind of how you lead into it, how it develops, and how the sentiment changes. And I think we've had pretty much all of the variables that characterize a bear market. What do you think, Dan? Yeah, so I would just say from the price action, you know, I've been around for a little more than 20 years and I've seen two bear markets. And the one that happened in 2002, the bottom in 2002, really in October 2002, was pretty bad. It was long and, and every rally got sold. There were some amazing rallies in it. In 07, 08, it was really um, a response to a major crisis. And I think there's two really important differences here. So could we bang around and get ourselves back to 2000 in the S&P over the next year without a crisis? Yeah, that would feel like a bear market. It would feel a lot like after the exuberance of the late 90s. And I think that could be a healthy thing after we've had a 10-year bull market for all intents and purposes. Yeah, I just don't think that the market is treating uh, the current environment. And, and think of all the disparate but very important exogenous factors to just S&P earnings that are causing this. I think the market is trying to figure out whether there is this um, you know, crisis moment out there. Because again, while the U.S. banks are as healthy as they've ever been on balance sheet, and I want to be clear about that, I'm not worried about U.S. banks per se. Um, I am worried about debt to, you know, net debt to EBITDA across the entire corporate sector. And frankly, I'm very worried about Europe. I, I just think right. Europe, we have not even begun to even fix the problems of the last credit cycle. And in fact, we're a headline away from a lot of political uh, discomfort. You know, I mean, I agree with Gunlock in that, uh, you know, saying bear market. It's sort of arbitrary, right? 20, it's a nice round number. But at the same time, investors at home, basically what they want to know about 2019 is, is it going to be easier or is it going to be harder to make money versus 2018? What is the investing environment well, going been to far be? From easy. Right, yeah. right, exactly. So, right, right, right. Is, I know you so is it going to be easier so or harder? You, is it going to be a tougher environment? Is it going to be as hard? I mean, when every single asset class finishes a year lower, is it going to be right. easier or harder? Well, if every single asset class finishes the year lower, it must therefore be only as hard or easier, right? You can't have well, more than hope. everything. But let me ask you, what is a bear market? It's 20% down, but what else is it? Is it that every, every rally is sold? Is it that good news, it doesn't matter? Is it that, I mean, is, the, is that what you're talking about? I'm not sure. Technically, it's just down 20%. That's it. Okay. Yeah. But there's a lot more to it. That sentiment and liquidity leaving the market, that makes it. I think also, Ralph, Danny, Dan's point is also that relative to where we've come from, I mean, you know, we're only 13% off the top on the S&P, folks. This feels a lot worse. It is a lot worse below the surface. And relative to where we've come from, you can make an argument that this is still a correction, even though there's no question that the sentiment is so awful across every space other than S&P outlook and S&P earnings outlook. Our next guest says he has been wrong about a year-end rally, but this bull market is not dead. Let's welcome back Joe Zeidel, Blackstone's investment strategist. Joe, great to have you with us. Um, I think a lot of people had a call for a year-end rally, so you're in good company at this point. <laughs> um, but a lot what, of people have been wrong on that. Why are you sticking by the bull at this point, especially when we're seeing sort of a rolling bear market unfold in this market where you have various sectors roll into the down 20%? Yeah, the conditions that end bull markets are just not in place. You know, if you, if you think about what ends a bull market, it's an inverted yield curve, right? Or it's negative earnings growth or it's uh, negative GDP. And if you look at the conditions for 2019, I think what people are confusing or conflating is that we might have seen peak earnings growth, but it doesn't mean that growth is actually rolling over. I think EPS growth is going to be higher in 2019 than it was in 2018. Now, granted, we're not growing at 20% or 10% year-over-year EPS, but we still have positive growth rates. And what that means for stocks, I think, is that you know, this sell-off is overdone. I think this is a sentiment issue, not a fundamental issue that we're seeing here. So let's look ahead to 2019. I mean, 2018 is pretty much in the rearview mirror. So what are you seeing in terms of what kind of returns you're expecting? 
Well, I think they're going to be. I think they're going to be positive. We don't have our 2019 sure. uh, price target out yet. We're going to be publishing that on on January 3rd. But generally, the way I look at the fundamentals, it argues that you know, number one, we're going to see earnings growth. It's going to be slower, but we're going to see it. Number two, we're not headed toward a recession in any major economy out there. Europe worries me a lot. I think there are issues going on in Europe, specifically with Italy. Obviously, Brexit is uh, is 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 a disaster for the UK economy, and it'll have ramifications for for Europe. But generally speaking, what we knew back in September, think about September 21st when the market hit 29.40 on the S&P. What we knew then was that, number one, trade, war, number two, Brexit, number three, slowing earnings growth, and number four, slowing year-over-year GDP growth. What do we know today? We know all those same issues. What's different? Back then in September, the 10-year Treasury yield was sitting at about 3.25%. Today, it's about 2.88%. Right? That's actually better for equity valuation because if you think about how to value companies, it's earnings and interest rates. Both of those are actually tailwinds for equities. I think investors are just massively overreacting right now. But Joe, you, you named a couple things that are really important. I mean, can you explain to our viewers, though, that it wouldn't take so much to have the yield curve invert, right? To have earnings year over year get to flat, you know, to, to, to basically negative, right? Sure. Negative growth. I mean, these are not things that are now um, something that, you know, we have to think out that it could take 18 to 24 months to happen. Isn't that correct? Could sure, they I happen think- pretty quickly if we had a global slowdown and some sort of event. Sure, I think you're absolutely right. These things could happen anytime, but I think what people misunderstand about a yield curve is that it can stay flat for a long time. In 1995, the yield curve flattened and stayed flat for the next four years. It averaged 36 basis points over those four years, yet economic growth ripped. The economy grew 3.8% a year over those four years, and the markets took off. So a flat yield curve is not really a warning sign of anything. The data tells you that markets and economies can do well in a flat yield curve. So I don't think it's a flat yield curve means it's automatically going to invert. Now, it could, and once it inverts, you know, we know two things. Number one, the bull market will be over, and number two, we'll have a recession in 12 to 18 months. But I don't think that yield curve is going to invert anytime soon. And then secondly, on negative earnings uh, or negative earnings growth, it happens. And I think what people confuse is that a business cycle works at a different speed than an economic cycle. And a business cycle, you know, corporate profits, your trough in earnings to a peak in earnings, the average time on that is about seven quarters, whereas an economic cycle is, is many, many years. So you get greater ups and downs. So 2015, in the, sec- in the third and fourth quarters of 2015 and first quarter of 2016, we saw negative earnings growth, and that was a bad environment for equities. But I don't think we automatically tip over into negative earnings growth anytime in the next few quarters. Joe, thank you. Great, Joe Zidal, Blackstone. Ray of sunshine on this desk. Well, good, for, no, good for Joe for coming yeah. in here. First of all, great to have Blackstone on the desk. Great to also hear a view that's at least getting back to a view that he said. You know, a couple months ago, people couldn't find enough positive things to say. Um, again, I'll, I'll remind that I think credit markets had not fallen apart. What bothers me since September is that credit markets in mid-October did fall apart. Um, we are getting a dynamic where I think that's also going to feed into the optimism. But, you know, you started to see, again, this NAHB housing index today. The last two months, the, the, the cumulative effect of two months is the biggest move we've seen in this index in many, many years. And that concerns me. Yeah. Again, the reasons for us slower far more than the Fed. I think the silver lining in this is we could get some news out of the Fed that gives us a couple-week rally that will surprise a lot of people, I think. With that said... Europe is absolutely a mess. You're talking about you know, $5.3 trillion balance sheet over there. You're talking about a lot of negative rates across the continent, which is disturbing. I mean, there's just a lot of headwinds. 
bring that and what Dan talks about as well. We don't even talk about the potential for political risk here in the form of a Mueller investigation. That's not a political commentary. That's out there. And with every passing day, I think that grows more viable. All right. Still ahead. Check out shares of Oracle jumping after its earnings report. That conference call is underway right now. We'll bring you all the latest headlines. Plus, Johnson & Johnson getting hit again today after the fallout of reports surrounding its baby powder product. The CEO just sat down with Jim Cramer moments ago. We will tell you what he said. And later, Goldman Sachs adding to its losses this year. It is the worst performing stock in the Dow. So what has the chartmaster buying this stock? He will explain. We are live from Times Square in New York City. Much more Fast Money right after this. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome back to Fast Money. Johnson & Johnson higher in the after hours following a $5 billion buyback announcement just moments ago. And this comes as the company has been under fire for reportedly knowing about asbestos lurking in its baby powder. CNBC's Jim Cramer just sat down with the company's CEO. You announced a $5 billion buyback. Tell me about it. Well, Jim, we did. We announced a $5 billion buyback this afternoon. And, and frankly, it's a reflection of our confidence and our conviction with the company going forward. And while we're managing these issues, we could not be more excited about the future. If you look at the fundamental and the underlying strength of our pharmaceutical sector, our medical device sector, and our consumer, consumer sector, we think we're well positioned for growth going forward. The stock is down more than 10% in the last two sessions alone, shedding more than $50 billion in market cap. So will the buyback help the stock? Guy. It's $5 billion. I think, if I'm, unless I'm really mistaken, Johnson Johnson's market cap is north of $330, $340 billion. So $5 billion is sort of, that's token in my world. So, but it'll help it in the short term. I still think there's headline risk here. I think we could totally do a, a 360 in the stock going back to the 120 level that we saw earlier this year. I think in terms of valuation, that makes it interesting. I think there's headline risk. But assuming there is no headline risk and this is behind them, $5 billion notwithstanding. If you like Procter & Gamble recently, which has been ridiculously on fire, mm -hmm. at 24 times forward earnings, even with this news, you got to love J&J at 15, in my opinion. What's interesting about this Reuters article, we were chatting with an analyst from Learing today, and she said that everything that was revealed, quote-unquote revealed in that Reuters article, was actually already in court documents that were presented to the court but not made public. So finally, these documents make it to the public. But the big question is whether or not more lawsuits will come forth and whether or not there will be more settlements and, therefore, more money out of pocket for J&J to, to settle. And, and, you know, I'm not, I'm not a lawyer. I'm not going to yeah. get involved in an antitrust case. I, I will say that um, from what I've read, it sounds like this is going to be tough to prove. Um, but the bottom line is, I think, for the market, and I talked about this on Friday, which is just that the loss of leadership from a company like J&J is notable. And that tape bombs are something that, that you don't expect. This is not a headline you would have thought of. But then again, you know, before those headlines, this company was not cheap. And Guy talked about it, at least on a relative basis, to a Procter & Gamble. Sure, I own J&J all day. But at this stage of a market cycle, um, this is a very defensive company on balance sheet, on their core business, on diversification, on how well they're run, albeit, you know, maybe there's some stuff here. Um, but on valuation, 
not terribly interesting, frankly. And I think probably most people are neutral on that. All right. Well, do not miss the full interview with Jim and the Johnson Johnson CEO tonight on Mad Money at the top of the hour. Coming up, check out Oracle jumping after its earnings report. That conference call is going on right now. We will bring you the latest headlines. In the meantime, here's what else is coming up on Fast. This year may have seemed like a horror show for Goldman Sachs as the stock gets crushed. But the chartmaster sees something that has him pressing the buy button. He'll tell us what that is. Plus, the target label is your best buy. Well, shareholders may not feel that way about the retailer this year, but Karen Feinerman has three reasons to buy the beaten down stock. She'll explain when Fast Money returns. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Methane management is a critical part of achieving a lower carbon future. Chevron is taking action to keep methane in the pipe. Their 2028 upstream methane intensity target is set to be 53% below the 2016 baseline. They're committed to evolving facility designs and operating practices. And they've trialed over 13 advanced detection technologies, including drones and satellites. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com methane. Welcome back to Fast Money. Financials holding strong amid today's sell-off as the best-performing sector, although still in the red and sinking deeper into a bear market. Bob Pisani is at the NYSC with the details. Hey, Bob. Hello, Melissa. You know, the good news today is the banks, particularly regional banks, outperformed on a relative basis today. All right. But with the S&P down 2%, some banks were flat or eked out small gains. So Comerica, Fifth Third, Wells Fargo, Bank of America, PNC Financial, not bad. The bad news is this group is down nearly 20% for the year, and it couldn't even sustain a modest rally. Banks led stocks off the lows right after the open, but they couldn't even sustain 2% on the day. That's pretty small, and by midday, they sold right into the rally. Oversold doesn't really describe what's happened to this group. Most of the big names, your Goldman's, Morgan Stanley, Citigroup, Wells Fargo, Bank of America, they're down 30% or more off of their 52-week highs. Goldman, in particular, of course, caught up in a major investment fund scandal as Malaysia files charges against that firm. And now we're seeing other sectors of the financial sector getting hit. American Express, for example, this has been a big winner this year. It hit an historic high just two weeks ago. But it's come down from 114 to 101 in that very brief two weeks. Same with the credit cards. Visa's been a monster all year. Historic highs around 150. What was it in October? Since then, it's traded right in line with the S&P 500. This is the S&P Visa. Still up 16% for the year, though. Same with MasterCard. Historic high in October, trading almost in line with the S&P since then. These two names acting like some kind of future barometer of U.S. consumer spending, which is really sort of what they are. You still don't let the sell-off in these two names spook you too much. There is a multi-decade shift that's been going on from cash and checks into electronic payments. We've been covering this for years, and these two are the stars in the space. I would expect that growth 
to continue into 2019. Back to you, Melissa. All right, Bob. Thank you, Bob Pisani. Our next guest says, despite the fallout in financials, there is still one name in the space that is worth a buy. And it might surprise you. Chart master Carter Worth is over at the Plasma with the name. Hey, Carter. Sure. I thought we'd do a little catch the falling knife in Goldman. But first, let's talk about the sector overall. No interest in financials as a concept, as a bet, uh, as a long. Uh, Goldman seems a little extreme. So uh, the current classifications that we have go back to 1989, as all will know. And what this is, is the weighting of the S&P, excuse me, the financials within the S&P. And you can see here that basically we're nowhere near sort of epic lows. This, of course, was a recession in 1990 when financials were as low as 6% of uh, the S&P. Right now we're about 13.5. But what does sort of stand out is if you were to draw some lines, again, this is the weighting of financials in the overall S&P, it's still nowhere near sort of capitulatory lows, as, for instance, energy uh, might be. In terms of Goldman versus the BKX and then Goldman specifically, this is the correlation between uh, Goldman in blue and uh, the BKX, dominated by uh, super cap financials, of which, of course, Goldman is one. And then you've had this fairly extreme um, news-related, we just heard from Bob, right, but the question is, is it overdone or is the market uh, in Goldman now discounting all the bad news? So down four versus up 22. Let's draw some lines. What we have is the, the index, and this is the risk for financials. Are we down to the election low? Meaning this is the presidential election, and now watch this. If I put these lines in, what we know is we are not down to where we were after the presidential in uh, November of 2016. So my bet is that financials as an aggregate can still actually go quite a bit lower. By contradistinction, take a look at Goldman. Now Goldman is, in fact, as of today, retraced the entire election move. You see the lines right there? You can literally draw it. We have gone and undone it. You also know this is a head and shoulders top, but to some extent it's been played out, right? The neckline being there. So my hunch is that Goldman is actually uh, so bad it's good having redone the entire election and then some versus financials overall, which are not. Uh, One or two more charts and I'm done. Um, There's Goldman again. One more, I think. Okay. Now, this is going back to 2000, 1999 when Goldman IPO'd. And today, we touched down to the penny at this long-term trend line. Literally stopped right there. My bet is that you can get a nice little bounce, 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 bounce off that line. Goldman, long, so bad it's good. Carter must come over to this desk. So Carter, bad. come on over, please. Good. Shelby will bring the chair in. Shelby, our new page. Welcome to Shelby. Welcome, Shelby. Welcome, Shelby. Sir. And welcome, Carter. So welcome, Carter. So good, it's bad. So you had mentioned the idiosyncratic story that has Goldman underperforming the broader sector at this moment in time. How do we know that the idiosyncratic we nature don't. We don't. will but actually... We know that, that the market uh, has a way, after a long precipitous decline, to have a capitulatory-type day after news has been brewing. Have we seen that in Goldman? I'm going to make the bet that it's close enough. In the same way that J&J, after the first news hit, then you have a follow-through day, and you start to get it priced. Meaning, we're looking for price discovery. If something out of the blue happens, you don't do it day one. But Goldman has been under this pressure for a long time from the group, and then it's under specific pressure, idiosyncratic, to its security. And then today, yet another piece of news, indictment. It seems to me, and again, the symmetry of the move, having retraced exactly the election, you know, you step in and be a bit uh, contrary. 
So, Carter, what do you make of, like, today I thought was really interesting. American Express was one of the first mega cap stocks that actually made a new high during the recovery, and I think earlier this month. And now, today, it was down 4.5%. It's down about 11.5%. When you think about, okay, so you're talking about banks. We know that they've been the hardest hit among financials. Now we're starting to see consumer credit names, very specific, kind of take it on the chin. How do you think of that? X, the idiosyncratic well, stuff were, in the Those were safety names to yeah. some extent, and then they go after and they're doing that in the market. We saw what happened in Staples today, meaning there's a cycle to selling, right? You you. Typically, the week go first. We saw industrials roll, semis roll, then financials. But Fang was holding out. Then they go after the large cap growth names. And then money clusters into safety names. At the end of the day, in a real sell-off, nothing holds up. And we saw what happened in the Staples today. Meaning, at some point, the selling gets around to everybody. It's interesting, CBW. And I'm sure you're going to be right because most of the time, oh, well. mm. he is right. It's in the pantheon but, of technical But it's analysts. interesting. I mean, I forget about Goldman Sachs. So Goldman is what it is. Morgan Stanley's making a basically an 18-, 19-month low today. Wells Fargo's 52-week low. Citibank trading now significantly below their tangible book. Even J.P. Morgan is probably 16% off their highs. I guess my question is, and Mel talked about this on her other show today. What's there's something wrong with the banks? What do you sure. think it is? Well, remember, if we are truly going into a, a, a cycle change, even a contraction, financials will underperform. There's almost no instance in history where financials are outperforming in a period of economic weakness. So, in, in fact, the pairs trade that I'm sort of arguing for is that financials uh, likely do have more downside, whereas Goldman, again, it's risky, might have priced it all in. Where does volume come into your analysis? It's the number one thing. So volume is more important than price, right? The level of activity, whether it's in real estate or in any endeavor, the more frenetic it is, the more symptomatic of a transition. And great volatility, which comes with great volume, occurs at market bottoms and at market tops. This is clearly a market top. We've been topping for a while. We made a good 10-year run, a lot of volatility, and a lot of volume coming into individual names. Carter, thank you. Good thank to you. see you. Carter Braxton Worth. Love him. The pantheon of, of Where can you see Carter each week aside on, from this show? On Options Action amongst show. other shows. Great show. Um, <laughs> one of the things I think is interesting, he, draws, he drew his chart. Say what you want about banks, and let's get to the fundamentals. Since the election, I think there's a number of important fundamental differences to why banks should be trading above that election level. They include the fact that the, deregula- the, the regulatory environment or deregulation is certainly their friend. I think it's a very different environment. That may have been half the reason you bought them. And their balance sheets have been validated and stress-tested over and over again. So um, that's the one part of this uh, that is troubling for me. Um, because banks shouldn't be trading here on valuation. They shouldn't. I, I get that they could be less profitable. I get that there's credit out there, but not with these balance sheets and not in this environment. All right. We do have some breaking news here on CBS and its former chairman and CEO Les Moonves. Let's get to Julia Borson in Los Angeles for the details. Julia. Melissa, former CBS CEO Les Moonves will not receive any of the $120 million in severance that was in question. The board has uh, completed its investigation into former chairman and CEO Moonves, issuing a statement saying, quote, with regard to Mr. Moonves, we have determined that there are grounds to terminate for cause, including his willful and mass material misfeasance, violation of company policies and breach of his employment contract, as well as his willful failure to cooperate fully with the company's investigation. Mr. Moonves will not receive any severance payment from the company. The board also saying that the investigators concluded that harassment and retaliation are not pervasive at CBS, but also that resources devoted to human resources, training and development, and diversity and inclusion initiatives 
have been inadequate. Also saying there were incidents in which HR and the company did not hold high performers accountable. CBS shares are unchanged in after hours trading, but those CBS shares did hit a 52-week low today. Melissa? Karen's got a quick question. Yeah, recently I read that uh, he wanted to challenge this, not this last news, but the idea that maybe he wouldn't get the severance. Do you think that's going to happen? Well, we'll see. I mean, this statement from the board does seem pretty definitive. I mean, just looking at the way they say willful and material misfeasance. I mean, these are pretty dramatic statements here. It is still possible that he will challenge this. I mean, and look for perhaps a part of that $120 million severance. But this does seem like a pretty definitive investigation, you know, done by an outside uh, outside counsel. All right, Julia, thank you. Julia Borson in Los Angeles. Still ahead, Oracle rallying in the after-hour session. The company conference call is underway right now. We will hear from the CEO and get a reaction from Wall Street. Plus, it has been an all-out mess for retail stocks as the group plunges into a bear market. Despite the sell-off, a number of names are still up double digits this year. We will tell you what they are and if they're worth a buy when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Oracle rallying after hours following its earnings beat. That conference call is still underway. Josh Lipton is following the action on the conference call. He joins us from San Francisco. Hey, Josh. Yeah, Melissa, this stock really popped in the after hours when Oracle CEO Safra Katz delivered guidance. Total revenues, Q3, she's calling, growing between 2 and 4% constant currency. Non-GAAP EPS expected to grow 7 to 9%. She says that would put it between 86 and 88 cents. And you saw the stock really pop after she delivered that. Uh, CEO Mark Hurd also on the call, wrapping up the quarter. Take a listen to that. Apps had a spectacular quarter. We had great momentum, growing 7% for the overall ecosystem, over $11 billion in trailing 12 months, and 91% of that is now recurring revenue. We continue to grow revenue faster than the market, and we have an enormous opportunity ahead of us, particularly in ERP as well as HCM. Also on the call, he talked about uh, Jeff Bezos, he said, gave the command to get off Oracle database, but Amazon isn't there yet, even after years of trying, Ellison said. Melissa, back to you. All right, Josh, thank you. Josh Lipton in San Francisco. Guy, what do you make of Oracle? Well, Dan just gave me a tutorial, as only Dan can, in the break. <laughs> no, and he, we talked about it, but I, when, a lot of things that he told me I was going to say. The fact that stock has basically been trading from 44 to 52 over the last two and a half years, you're smack in the middle of the range. Valuation is not ridiculously expensive, but it's not that cheap given their earnings growth. They bought back a lot of stock. I mean, there are better places to be. I don't think you're going to get crushed here, but this stock isn't going to rally 15% over the next couple of months either. So if you want to be in the space with some momentum and a stock that's gotten hit, I think this indicates that Salesforce is still the superior company. All right. From the cloud to the chips, Micron set to report earnings after the bell tomorrow. Options traders implying a big move. Dan here, the aforementioned Dan, has all the uh, action. Mm. Yeah, this one's important, I think, actually, for the sentiment of the semi-space here. We obviously know this trades at a single-digit earning per share, multiple low single digits. Um, the options market is implying about a $3 move in either direction. That's about 9%, and that is definitely rich to the average over the last four quarters, about 4.5% um, in either direction. So this one's going to be watched. We have a couple charts here. Look at this one-year chart. It's showing this almost 50% decline from those 52-week highs earlier in the year. The stock's down 17.5% percent 
on the year, and it's very close to those 52-week lows. But here's a six-year chart. This is really interesting, and this is really talks to why this thing trades at a 4 uh, PE. Look at how this stock can move here. Uh, back in 2016, this company had $11.5 in earnings, or excuse me, um, actually had negative earnings, and then two years later, they had $11.5 in earnings. It went up 150% on two occasions of the last six years. That peak to trough decline from the prior um, top was about 75%. We're only about 50% right here. So to me, I, you know, I don't know how you put a number on it when it stops going down. Mm-hmm. It's been cheap for, I don't know, 20 Ever. so percent. Yeah, forever. Um, but at a certain point, it's got to be so bad it's good where investors are just discounting the end of the cycle. Yeah, you know, what's interesting is, is you know, the semis have at least performed better than the rest of tech and the rest of the market since they really fell apart. I, I don't know if that's anything to be excited about, but on a relative basis, I would continue to watch them. I think they hold the key. All right. For more options action, check out the full show Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Still ahead. Retail stocks getting a lump of coal this holiday season as a group tracks for its worst December ever. But the chairwoman, Karen here, says there is one name that could be a major bargain right now. She will tell us what that is. Plus, it has been exactly one year since Bitcoin topped out just under $20,000 and the bulls have gotten absolutely buried. Is there any end to the bear market in sight? The traders will weigh in when fast money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Retail is getting rocked ahead of the holidays. The XRT ETF down about 20% this quarter for its worst performance in a decade. This is many stocks in the group sit in bear market territory. Dom Chu's at headquarters with more on this retail wreck. Dom. Well, believe it or not, Melissa, consumer discretionary stocks are still outperforming the broader market so far this year. The sector is slightly down on a year-to-date basis compared to the 4-plus percent drop in the S&P 500. Now, since the end of September, discretionary is in a tight race for the second worst-performing sector in the S&P. Energy is the worst performer in that time span by a pretty big margin at this point. As things stand, nearly 90% of the consumer discretionary sector in the S&P 500 is down this quarter to date. But even as the space has gotten crushed, a number of names are still positive on the year. You take Macy's, for example, that stock is down around 13, 14% this quarter, down nearly 30% from its high, but still up 19% on the year. TJX, the parent company of TJ Maxx and Marshalls, et cetera, is down around 20% this quarter, but still hanging on to a more than 15% gain for 2018. And Lululemon, no, it's not an S&P stock, but still. It's plunged nearly 30-some percent in the last three months, but it's up an impressive 50% since then. And then there's Target, which with today's sell-off is now just slightly negative on the year, but still hanging in there relative to the rest of the group. Now, all of this, of course, is happening with measures of consumer confidence still up at relatively high levels. So, Melissa, are these stocks already pricing in a possible pullback by consumers next year, or will they reverse course at some point? Back to you. All right. Thanks, Dom. Well, as Dom had mentioned, shares of Target hitting their lowest levels of the year, but the chairwoman says she still likes the beaten down retailer. She's over at the plasma to make the case for the stock. Karen. Yes. So, of course, whenever I want to make the case for a stock, I always look to valuation first. And so that's one of my favorite things about Target here. We look at the P.E. ratio. It's been so much higher several years ago. But even in the downtimes, this is sort of when the Amazon threat seemed to be at its peak. And here we are right here with the earnings trading at uh, it's I don't know how many year low, but a long time since it's been at this level. And I think that the earnings are actually going to be pretty good. So why is that? Why do I think the earnings are going to be good? It will survive Amazon. They bought, shipped, 
And what they're trying to do, and I think they're doing it successfully, is be able to really be an online player as well. We saw in their last quarter, they had very good comps, by the way, but a lot of that was driven by their online business. So I think that will continue to develop, and I think they will absolutely survive Amazon. The other part of the story is the transformation of the stores themselves. You want people to go in the stores. They want to, they can pick up online. They can pick up in store and order online. They could just go in the store. The stores are starting to look great. They're a good way through a multi-year renovation process of the stores. So I think if you add all those things together, plus the very low expectations that are now built in, I think the stock really overreacted to that last earnings call. Put that all together, I think the target has pretty good upside from here and really not a lot of downside. Yeah, I, I happen to agree with you, Karen. So I'll play devil's advocate just to do it. Target went from 86 basically to 70 in a straight line, bounced, and now it's below those levels. Eerily reminiscent, by the way, of what Facebook's done, and the damage hasn't seemed to be reconciled with Facebook. Does it concern you that maybe there's, I know you're going to say you can never buy the bottom, which none of us do, but does it concern you that maybe the damage isn't fully done in the stock? I feel like the damage is really done in the stock. The Facebook analogy is a very idiosyncratic one. This is more, you know, retail broadly. But I think the risk reward has obviously changed a lot. Maybe it shouldn't have been up there in the 80s, but I really don't think it should be here in the, I don't know, 64 and change. And so it has a 12-ish multiple. I think the damage is done. Karen, I'm a little worried about the margin. Talk about that, please. So that was probably the primary thing that people didn't like in the last earnings call. The margins went from a 49 handle to a 48 handle. People were concerned that as the shift to online business happens that the margins will compress. Yes, I believe that is true. And I think that we'll continue to see that across the board. Macy's has that same situation. As this online business develops for each of them, margins will compress. However, the PEs have compressed well beyond that. So right. I think that's in there, too. Thanks for that, Karen. Karen Feinerman. Would that be considered well, a power pitch? kind of like a power pitch or, without the or vote. Or not. Sort really. of. Yeah. Except she's should, just making the case. Anyway? I mean, I guess. More, more making a, a case. Well, I tell you what. I think, as always, Karen did a great job. So let's just play the game, whether you want it or not. Um, I, I just, I'm worried about the entire space. I think there's enormous okay. competition in, in everything they do. I know Dan doesn't like them, so. She just dimed you. Um, coming up, Bitcoin soaring today one year after it topped out around 20,000 is the beginning of a bottom year. A top crypto investor will be here to explain. We are live at the Nasdaq and Times Square. More Fast Money still ahead. Welcome back to Fast Money. Today marks a very special anniversary for Bitcoin. On this day last year, Bitcoin hit an all-time high, almost reaching $20,000. The frenzy paved the way to some very, very bold calls that it seemed like everyone wanted to get in on the crypto craze. Bitcoin could be at 40000 at the end of the 2018. It really easily could. These calls are a bet that if it's volatile to the upside, we could easily see over $50,000 next year. 50000 by the end of the year. I think Bitcoin still has really bright prospects. I mean, we think it's going to be at least 20000 by middle of this year. Are you sticking by that forecast? Yes. Bitcoin, let's say we think can, it can reach 25000 It doesn't require Bitcoin to go up every day till the end of the year. You know, we still think Bitcoin can reach 25000 by the end of the year. In terms of uh, institutional participation, though, we need to see institutions participate in the underlying for, for your forecast of 50 k to hit in, in the next year? I don't think so. I think that the, there will be a natural trickle down from the derivatives products into the underlying. 
Here we are a year later. Bitcoin has plunged about 82 percent from that all time high. Now sits just over 3000. Our next guest says that even though he was wrong about 50,000 Bitcoin, $50,000 of Bitcoin, he will be right about a Bitcoin comeback next year. Spencer Bogart is a partner at Blockchain Capital. Spencer, what a year it's been. I mean, we started the year with you saying $50,000. Are you going to venture with a forecast now? Look, in general, at Blockchain Capital, we're long-term venture investors, so we're not really doing short-term price targets. Could Bitcoin go to 50000 Absolutely. It doesn't have the same kind of price-to-earnings, enterprise value-to-revenue that normally puts kind of an upper bound or a ceiling on the typical kind of early-stage technology company. So with Bitcoin, I mean, absolutely it can go that high. How long will it take? I'm not sure. What was faulty about that run to 20,000? I mean, at the time, it seemed like every Bitcoin bull said that that was fine and it was only going to go higher. I feel like we can't believe the bull case from here unless we understand what was wrong about that thesis that brought it to 20,000. There's absolutely nothing wrong with the thesis. The problem is just that up until very recently, Bitcoin has been a market that's almost entirely driven by retail, which is very unique. And what does that mean? Well, it means that in bull markets, we go a little bit too high, and in bear markets, we go too low. So that's where we are right now. The reality is that the fundamentals have not changed. I mean, 2018 has been a fantastic year for Bitcoin. Ignore the price. I mean, underline it, the technology. This is the first year that we started to move to scale Bitcoin with the Lightning Network, where you can transact extremely quickly and extremely cheaply. And meanwhile, the institutionalization of the asset class and the ecosystem itself are really only getting stronger. I mean, we've seen endowments like Yale, Harvard, and MIT move into the space. We've seen NASDAQ and the New York Stock Exchange's sister company, Bact, start to move into the space with Bitcoin derivatives. We've seen qualified custodians move into the space. And lastly, I think probably the most encouraging thing is the quality of the talent that we're seeing entering the space. I mean, if you talk to young people, this has captured their imagination. And a lot of the best and the brightest are saying, I want to go work on Bitcoin. Um, a lot of people got burned in this, Spencer, and you said that the trade was driven largely by retail investors. Do you need the retail <laughs> investor to rebound off this low? And do you think we've seen the lows for Bitcoin for this, I don't want to say this year, but going forward? I mean, do you think this was, this? we'll look back and say, that was the low, that was your buying opportunity? Look, I think it's a great buying opportunity right now. Um, could we go lower? Absolutely. I think anywhere between here and 2000 or 1000 is just a fantastic buying opportunity. I think when we look back 24 months from now, even 12 months from now, we're going to say, why didn't I buy then? <laughs> I hope so. I mean, I hope it's not, why did I buy then, as we are here sitting a year later. Spencer, it's always great to speak with you. Thank you. Spencer Bogart. Um, just quickly about Bitcoin, Dan. What? So I think there's a couple things. Learned, Obviously, um, you know, Bitcoin was the first major use case that was popularized yeah. with, with blockchain technology. And I think there's obviously going to be peaks and troughs in this sort of thing. So, you know, as far as I'm concerned, um, could it go much lower? Yeah, I don't know if it's capitulated just yet. I know this last month kind of felt like it, but I'd watch the money. I'd follow the ecosystem. I'd follow the VCs. There is a lot of very smart money chasing the ecosystem right now. Up next, final trades. Time for the final trade, Tim Seymour. This is certainly make-a-list time of year. It also is for stocks in the market that look beaten down. Boeing is a first-class company with balance sheet and cash flow. And they just announced a buyback after the bell. Karen. Uh, Yeah, you know, if it's good enough for my sort of power pitch at the plasma, whatever it was, (laughs) I'm not really sure. I do like it. I think it's very oversold here. And I think we'll, the risk-reward ratio from here, actually, I think it's excellent. 
Dan Nathan. Uh, yeah, Oracle. I know it looks cheap to many of its peers. I would not be chasing this thing in the aftermarket at 48 bucks. These are massively manufactured earnings per share, in my opinion. Mel, I know you're a sports aficionado. Do you think the Huge Yankees? Fan. Do you, this is just. A, I know you've been focused on this. Do you think the Yankees actually make a play for Bryce Harper? Absolutely. I do. You know, it's funny you said it. I do as well. I could see both Bryce Harper and Manny Machado in pinstripes. Don, the, pardon me. Don. What's your no, final train, sir? No. You know, the CBS, so this new board at CBS, so good for them. Someone. Good for them, good for them. CBS bounces from here. That does it for us tonight. See you back here tomorrow at 5 for more Fast. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. The spirit of performance defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura has been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com.